Tiffany and you One and one together make two And all the stories that are true Tiffany and you You're listening to Tiffany and You, the podcast. This is your host, Tiffany Yu. On this episode, I'm joined by Nicole Cardoza, who's an entrepreneur focused on making wellness accessible for all. She's the founder of Yoga Foster, Reclamation Ventures, and organizes the Anti-Racism Daily, a daily newsletter to dismantle white supremacy with 60,000 subscribers. Nicole is someone I've come to admire as a leader, and I spoke with her about how a cover shoot with Yoga Journal magazine forced her to confront racism within the wellness industry and take action to create Reclamation Ventures and the Anti-Racism Daily Newsletter. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone. You're listening to this episode of Tiffany and You. This is your host, Tiffany Yu. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Cardoza. She's the founder of Yoga Foster, Reclamation Ventures, and also a daily email newsletter called the Anti-Racism Daily. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Nicole and I met through the Summit Fellows Program. We were both fellows in 2018, was it? I think that's when we started, end of 2018. 2018, Summit had started this program to try and encourage more people working in the social impact space to connect with their incredible community. And since then, Nicole and I have been able to hang out in Los Angeles at Summit LA and then in Utah as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And then we reconnecting at Summit last year in LA. Yeah. I, I remember you came in late. I feel like I'm always late. <laughs> <laughs> and then we caught up in February of this year. You were passing through San Francisco very briefly. Now, here we are. I'm in San Francisco. Where are you right now? Wow, that's right. I'm in Alaska now. Gosh, it, that feels like so long ago. Feels like long ago. You mentioned you were ready for 2020 to be over. We're recording this at the beginning of July, so we've still got half a year to go. But I'd, I love starting these conversations by going into origin stories. And so I know you're working on a couple of different things these days, but I would love to hear about wanting to make wellness accessible for all. What does that journey look like for you? Sure. I got into my own wellness practice when I was in college and went to a yoga class not really sure what I would get out of it. And it was one of the first times that I really felt at home in my body. It was just a wonderful, affirming and grounding practice for me. I'm very lucky that I had a great first experience. And shortly thereafter, I had been volunteering at a school at a time they wanted to start a yoga program. So I helped them organize that and bring in volunteers and whatnot and saw the impact that the practice can have with students. And the yoga studio that I went to wasn't far from the school that I was working on at the time, but the practice looked entirely different. And I started to pay attention to like, what does yoga look like in New York City? And why does it look so different <laughs> than what it feels like in this classroom where it's just kids coming together and volunteers coming together and exploring breath and body and movement 
Whereas it feels like this exclusive little club outside and that question, it just is what I do. I, I just keep asking myself that question all the time. It's like, what does it look like if wellness was something that was actually built for all of us? Because I do feel like now with the experience I've had building organizations in the wellness industry, that the wellness industry is more likely to make us sick than it is to make us well. Mm. You talked about feeling really grounded and at home in your body. I just love that idea. But if you come back to just knowing that it's within you, it's within your body, I think that's really beautiful. And then there are so many things that inspire me about you and your leadership, but you really got me thinking about what wellness looks like by being exposed to your work over the past couple of years and learning more about the accessible yoga movement it made me start to really think about what does disability and wellness look like? And, and, the, and the fact that we can all access that space. Right. And everybody should deserve to be seen and celebrated in that space as well. There's just such a negative. I think so much of this industry has been built around the idea of what a well body looks like, what a healthy body looks like, not just the wellness industry, but health uh, overall. And gosh, that framework of what a, a healthy body looks like has left out so many people from the conversation, that alone, and has really shaped what touch points, what access points people have to this practice. And I want to name too that it's easy to, to get mixed up in this, but there's a wellness industry and then there's a wellness practice. Mm. And we've been taught that they're the same. Right. Because that's how you are encouraged to buy things and <laughs> take subscriptions and follow people. We feel like we have to contribute to the industry in order to uh, receive the benefits of the practice. So I just need to name that, too, as we talk about it. There is a space for all of us in the practice, even if we don't see it in the industry. Mm. So would you say that you are playing both in the industry and the practice? I am. I am. Most of my work is around redistributing capital or redistributing assets in the industry. So I started a nonprofit, which was a philanthropic model that takes a lot of funding from corporate partners and redistributes that to make wellness more accessible in schools. And I just started a venture fund that does the same thing. It takes in money from investors, from LPs, and redistributes it to people that are truly changing the industry through more diverse practices. Yeah, I do want to get into that. The story of how this venture fund came about is really important. So I wanted to chat about what happened in 2019, only a year ago. You had this really incredible opportunity to be featured on the cover of Yoga Journal, which is the top yoga magazine in the country. I'd love for our listeners to hear about what happened, which then led you to start Reclamation Ventures. Sure. Yes. I knew I wanted to start the fund for a while before this happened. And I'd been thinking about it and planning for it, but I was really wrapped up full-time with my nonprofit. And through my nonprofit, got the opportunity to be featured in Yoga Journal magazine and then got asked to be on the cover of the magazine, which I was super flattered by because it's a great way for my work to be seen and celebrated. And the whole magazine issue was around the idea of transformation. And that's what I stand for in this work. So I flew to Denver. I shot the cover did a whole bunch of different shoots. We shot like three variations of what the cover could be just so 
because you never know what you want at the end, right? Or what's going to look good. And then a couple of weeks later, the company had posted a survey on their social media and emailed it out to people asking their community to vote whether I should be on the cover or somebody else. And they had a picture of me side by side with an incredible teacher named Catherine Budig, who happens to be white and blonde and had our pictures up side by side. There was no name, right? Right. That's correct. Yes. There was no bylines on the cover. So no words on the cover. It wasn't like, do you want to read about Catherine's really amazing work or my amazing work? It was literally just a picture of us. And we were both seated and we were both looking at the camera and we were both smiling and we both looked relatively casual. And it was very, very similar. And they had never done a cover test like this before with two different people. They've asked their community to vote whether you'd want one picture or another, but they would be of the same person, right? So I shot three covers. They could have easily had two pictures of me from two different parts of the shoot, but they chose not to. And they sent me an email and told me that they did that because they were afraid that my cover wouldn't sell, mm. which is very indicative of how they felt. So they've also created a lot of harm against people of color on their covers in the past. This is not new for them. And so... They made it really clear. And I, I told them my response, right? Not just how harmful that is and how disrespectful that is to me, but how indicative that is in this industry that major media companies or major brands have so much power to decide what wellness looks like and use that power in a way that is violent mm. against people of color and perpetuates the same stereotypes that all of us that are in this work are looking to change. So the irony is there was supposed to be a transformation issue and they were actually doing the opposite. Oh. So I sent them a note and they didn't respond, which really angered me. And so I shared it. I shared it publicly on social media because I know there's so many people that have had something like this happen to them, including myself. It might not be as blatant as the survey or the story or how disrespectful yoga journal was, but there's been so many instances where we've been told that we don't belong and that we're not good enough to be here. Yeah. And, right? and I want to read something from your original post. You wrote, what are they asking the community to choose between? I don't have the answers, but I know how this made me feel. I know how this comparison has made me feel for my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden, so you shared this on social media, people are sharing this. I remember you came into our Summit Fellows WhatsApp group and you said, hey, I'm noticing that my social media is really growing exponentially. What do I do? Right. So the reason why I want to ask you about this is because I think it's easy for many of us who hold multiple oppressed identities to just go into victim mode or to just move into inaction because it's just like, oh, this is happening again. And you took action so swiftly. I, I just remember thinking about how hard that was. I remember posting it and then putting my phone down and making pancakes because I was really stressed and I needed to do something. And then I picked my phone back up and I saw how quickly it was growing. So I like opened wine and it was like morning, <laughs> but I like had to have a glass of wine. It wasn't easy. It really wasn't easy, but what really, what inspired me was how many people shared it. The people that shared it were other people that have been marginalized. A lot of black women shared it really early on that are in my community. And so I was like, this is not just my story. This is all of our stories, right? Like any of us that have been marginalized. And it felt like it was my responsibility to um, make sure it wasn't just a flash in the pan 
And it wasn't just me calling out something and walking away. So yeah, I reached out to the WhatsApp group. I reached out to as many people as possible. And actually Natalie in the, in the group connected me to somebody who helped me organize and was like, if you want to have this fund and you want to pay this forward, you should raise money and you should talk about it and get people excited and get people engaged and let them know that there's so many people willing to do this work long-term, even if Yoga Journal isn't. So that's what I did. I decided uh, to raise money. I would give away grants of $5,000 to awesome entrepreneurs and put together the branding for RV and ultimately got Yoga Journal in addition to apologizing and committing to a bunch of shit that they never did. Well, the one thing they did do was give me all of the proceeds of that magazine. They put me on the cover and then gave me all of the, the profits of that magazine to reinvest back into the community. I will say I am the proud owner of a copy <laughs> of one of those magazines, but I want to read something that Yoga Journal included in their letter in that issue. And then I wanted to get an update from you 2020 as to what your relationship is with them now. So they wrote, we have played a large role in making people feel that yoga and wellness are not for them. And then the editor closed the letter by saying, Nicole, we need you. Mm, that is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward me to 2020. You had some interactions with Yoga Journal recently. Yes. When everything like ended publicly with the conversation and around this and people stopped liking and commenting on the Instagram post or whatever, Yoga Journal committed to giving me the profits of the magazine, but they also committed to doing DEI work. So hiring consultants to come in and analyze how their hiring practices and their editorial practices contributed to this harm. They also promised to create an advisory board where they would have people that would be on the board to be able to help guide this that were representative of the yoga community. And I had agreed at that time to be a part of the advisory board and told people both externally and internally with them that I'm in this work until it's done, right? I'm not walking away. And so I didn't receive all of the money from them until March of 2020. So very recently, and they also promised us some other smaller things online, not smaller, but to me, less transformational to have this work be rectified. So I just want to name that before I go on. But I received the bulk of the funding and I didn't receive it until March, 2020. I actually paid for one of the grants out of pocket based off of the money that they had promised because they didn't receive it from them. And then they consistently were very coy on whether or not they were doing this work when I would follow up with them over the course of the year. There's many times I sent them an email where they just simply didn't respond. And then in June, so just a couple of weeks ago, I received an email from their new brand manager or something like that, who prefaced the email acknowledging that they still hadn't done the work. This is a year later but then asking if they could use my image in an email that they were going to share for some type of solidarity with Black Lives and they needed my response by end of business day. And again, another year has gone by and the same type of harm is perpetuating. Like you once again want to use my image in a way that is highly disrespectful for me and not representative of this community. And in this case, so just to serve you and to save face for you in the wake of a revolutionary time. So 
I was really mad about it. And I sat on it for maybe a week, just thinking about how it would show up. But what started happening is I realized they were asking other Black women the same thing, and probably people from other backgrounds for things like this throughout the course of the year. But it was very apparent to me in this the month of performative allyship, like seeing other Black women calling them out on their own social media and feeling like once again, I need to step into this conversation, right? Because I did say I'd be accountable for this. And so call them out again two weeks ago. Yeah. And is any response still to be determined? They have not responded to me since I've both emailed them and posted what I posted on social media. They posted something on their Instagram saying that they would be doing a diversity report, but that feels like very too little too late. They also said they're going to be donating a few grand to the community, which to me is very clear that they're not willing to put their work, the money where the work needs to happen unless they can physically show it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, you should have invested that money a long time ago into bringing some DEI consultants in internally. And it doesn't have to cost you that much money to build an advisory board. But it's a bigger conversation now of like, who are we willing to support? And I know that people that carry that magazine are not interested in supporting people like that. And people that sponsor that magazine are interested in supporting that. And so what I hope comes out of this is not just a larger conversation of them being accountable for the space that they take up in this industry, but the brands that support them and the people that support them to hold them accountable too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to come back to this conversation on performative allyship all amidst a, a recession and a pandemic and probably a lot of other things to come. So let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we will continue chatting with Nicole. And we're back from the break. This is Tiffany here, and you're listening to this episode of Tiffany and You with Nicole Cardoza. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Before the break, we were chatting about Nicole's wellness journey, both into the industry and into her own practice, and controversy over being on the cover of Yoga Journal and some of the things they have or haven't done since then. So as we're recording this, we are a little over three months into the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the other things that has really impressed me about Nicole's leadership has been how she has pivoted all of her different ventures to adapt to the pandemic. So Nicole, want to bring you back in. As a leader of Yoga Foster, you were really transparent around what was happening with the organization. Yeah, I felt like I had to, because especially in wellness, we have a a health pandemic happening and I run wellness companies. And I think it's important to be clear on how the impact of this impacts the health disparities and exacerbates the health disparities that are already existing. Yoga Foster is a nonprofit. I mentioned that we redistribute resources from the wellness community. We make most of our funding off of working with yoga studios and yoga brands that host fundraisers for us. Most of those fundraisers are in person. (laughs) And so knowing that business model had been completely disrupted, first and foremost, it was important to name. And then two, we work in schools. And as we know, kids stopped going to school and they started to learn remote at home. And there's so much stress and anxiety generally with what's happening right now, compounded with the fact that a lot of kids don't have parents at home that are um, available to help them learn remote learning. A lot of our students don't have access to the internet or extra devices to be learning on all day or both. This health pandemic 
really reshaped what it meant to be working in this space. And so I just wanted to turn things inside out. And we just started for the first few weeks to start sharing week by week what was happening with us and how we were pivoting and what we were looking at. We lost about 90% of our revenue forecasted for the year. We had to lay somebody off. We had to apply for everything under the sun. <laughs> and, and I think those things are compounded for being, we're only a few years old. I'm, I'm a black female founder and it, it's already difficult to be able to navigate those spaces. There's so few nonprofits run by black women. All of that I think is important to name because that's a part of this work. Yeah. The the transparency is really important too, because I feel like people only see the accolades like Forbes 30 under 30, Summit Impact Fellow, 60,000 subscribers of this anti-racism daily. Yeah. But there is a work. There is a work that yeah. happens behind the scenes. But you all transitioned Reclamation Ventures to create an emergency fund. Tell me a little bit more about the, the RV emergency fund. Yeah. So similar thing. Initially, RV was giving away grants that helped people grow and scale their businesses in wellness, which is critically important. But as soon as we started seeing the impact of COVID, I realized that our community, which is underestimated entrepreneurs, which is a term that I got from Arlen Hamilton, who runs Backstage Capital, that underestimated means anybody who's seen as or undervalued in how their potential is as an entrepreneur. So it's black and brown founders, people with visible or invisible disabilities, people across the LGBTQIA spectrum, people impacted by the criminal justice system. We know that those communities are the most likely to be impacted by COVID, right? A lot of our brick and mortar yoga studios that are run by people of color don't have as much runway as other ones that are funded by private equity firms, for example. And so we shifted to say, instead of us trying to do more grants and strategic investments, which we are going to start this year, why don't we just give money to these people, just direct cash to help. At the first round we did, we raised about $150,000 to give away grants up to $2,500 um, per person just to cover a month of lost revenue. And then we just launched a second round that we're doing because that's what the community needs right now. And again, it's like how we do this work and why we do this work um, is just as important, if not more important than what we do. And so if what it means to be well has fundamentally shifted in America in 2020, so does the work. One of the things you said, you said, this is what the community needs, right? Mm. And Again, looking at the, the portfolio of really incredible things that you do, I'm, I'm just so impressed by the way that you see something that's needed and then you say, I need to be the one to do this. I want to dig into a little bit of like how that fire comes about because the RV emergency fund is great and the fact that you are bringing it back is amazing, right? How as a leader are you thinking through these decisions of, of what needs to get done? Really good question. Thank you for the inquiry on that. There's so many things that I see that I think need to get done and 99.9% .9 I know that I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's so many things I don't know how to fix. I think about climate change, global warming all the time on this. Like, oh my gosh, there's probably so many better ways to be thinking about harnessing energy or creating recycling programs. But like, I know I don't know. I don't know anything else than identifying the problem. Mm. Um, but when I see things that are close to my experience that I've had as an entrepreneur, I try to spend more time with it because I'm intimately familiar with the problem. I know what it's like to have lack of access to capital. I know what it's like to feel ostracized when I've walked into a yoga studio before. 
And in the cases of capital, that's something that I feel more and more that I have the capacity to solve. I'm incredibly privileged based on the connections I've created and the people I've met along my journey as an entrepreneur. I'm also incredibly privileged that I'm a light-skinned, able-bodied, cisgendered Black woman. You know what I mean? I can leverage my privilege to be able to help people that might not have the same opportunity. So That's what I see is there are a very small sliver of problems in the world that I think I can give a shot at. And I'm very willing to fail because I have failed so many times in my life. (laughs) I don't know about you, but the fact that I can do anything still surprises me to this day because there's been so many things that I've tried to do that like I've completely backfired or just like not work. I just try to do what I can where I can and see how it goes. (laughs) That's that's beautiful. And I think what hearing is you know where your sphere of influence is, right? You know what your locus of control is of the things that you have either subject matter expertise or lived experience expertise on, right? And that's where you tackle them, right? And there are so many other issues. Again, it's almost like we see the highlight reel, which is all the reclamation ventures and yoga foster and anti-racism daily. But there are all these other issues that other people who have more expertise are working on. Oh, totally. And also too, like you see the highlight reel and don't realize the pain that came before it. A lot of people recognized me because of the yoga journal article and thought, I remember I was just talking to somebody who thought I had just started yoga foster and it's like, I was doing yoga foster for six years. I didn't really get a salary until 2019. Like I, (laughs) I know it is like to start a startup and not have access to capital, for example, you know? And so I really want to reiterate what you said is like, it's so easy to feel like you don't belong based off of somebody else's highlight reel, because we rarely get an opportunity to talk about those experiences once we do get to a place, right? Where we have more influence too. Yeah. Yeah. So we chatted about this COVID-19 pandemic. There's also a mental health crisis. There's also a civil rights revolution. And before the break, we, we were chatting about your relationship with Yoga Journal They came back in wanting to feature you, your picture in something, but acknowledging that they hadn't held themselves accountable to some of the things that you had laid out, worked with them on, agreed to from a year ago. So now with police brutality, unfortunately not a new thing, but it has opened up so many non-Black people's eyes to the need for anti-racist work. Mm. And again, you moved so swiftly into action creating a daily email newsletter called the Anti-Racism Daily. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah. And it wasn't something I, I knew I was starting at the time. I think like many other Black people had a lot of people just like calling or texting, asking if I was okay or checking in. Like people I, don't, I haven't talked to in years, people who were like, I still don't know who they are because they have my number, but I didn't save theirs. And also because of the work that I do, I navigate a lot of white dominated spaces. I have a lot of people that identify as white that follow me. And I was even getting shared on social media as an anti-racism activist, which I don't consider myself, or an educator, which I didn't consider myself, simply because of what the Yoga Journal story has done, right? Although I've talked about this stuff for years, it was like the very public display of racism in wellness, right? 
so I was getting really frustrated with all of this and feeling very overwhelmed because I was also just trying to grapple of how I show up during this time as, as a Black woman in my own body, regardless of what everybody else thinks or everybody else's awakening. And so I posted something on social media. I'm like, I'll just send a daily email to people every single day with things that you can do because I know there's a million and I, I'm not going to answer everybody in my inbox right? I'm not going to hold space for people one at a time. I can just send you a link to something to do every day. And I posted just thinking whatever. And then I think in 24 hours, 8,000 people had signed up. And then it just became a thing. <laughs> so I'm still very surprised by how quickly that grew. Yeah. And, and today I think you said it has over 60,000 subscribers. Yeah. So it's grown pretty quickly. And now I'm putting energy into it before it was an email that I was sending for that reason of like, I just want people to get into action for a couple of reasons. One, I know that people in wellness know how to practice, but people in wellness tend to, white people in wellness tend to get really angry or upset or agitated about these kinds of things and then disappear, right? Because that's what happened with Yoga Journal. I posted, everybody was sharing it for like a week or so, and then I never heard from these people again. But we know how to practice. We literally talk about, if you practice yoga, a foundation of the philosophy of yoga is practicing consistently over time with enthusiasm, right? It's not something that was designed to just do once and walk away from. So people know how to practice. And I think that creating a practice around anti-racism is the only thing that's going to solve it in America because we can't just allow ourselves to get activated and walk away. Yeah. We had Corey Ponder on the podcast and he talked a lot oh. about how we need to make anti-racism work a habit. So you created this email newsletter. Again, one, yep. one, so many things that I appreciate you about you as a leader is that you have made it accessible. So if people do have the means they can contribute one time through PayPal or Venmo, or they can subscribe on Patreon or if they don't have the means, they can just subscribe, right? You never wanted to be behind a paywall. Yeah. Yeah. And I intend to keep it that way as well. And people that are, are supporting have made it sustainable for us to hire an editor. And because I've been writing them quickly and there's been typos and things like that, but I'm bringing on another writer onto the team and paying guest editors and paying scholars, actual anti-racism scholars who are contributing to this work. And so I'm inspired by what it can turn into. I didn't think that when I said I would send out a daily email, it would turn into something with its own URL and its own staff. And so I'm grateful that so many people are committed to doing this work because it's the only way that it changes. We need everybody to be doing this work. And I don't care if you sign up for my newsletter or not, but commit to doing this work every day. Usually what we do is we take what's happening in the news and we provide the historical context, context that in America was often stripped of our history books and we weren't even provided in formal education. But if you're not paying attention, you might not learn either. And so I want people to be paying attention to the news. I want people to understand the depth of the harm that's happening in to communities of color, to Black people in particular, because that's where we are right now, and take action every day, whether it's showing up at the polls or signing petitions or being more mindful of the language that they use and a million other things too. One of the things I've been reflecting on, and you alluded to this as how much content are we consuming that has a non-Black gaze? How much content are we consuming that also comes from a male gaze, right? Or a white male-dominated gaze? 
And that's something to keep in mind as well. And at least for me, having anti-racism daily newsletter coming in my inbox every day is a reminder, oh, have you taken an action today? Or, oh, is there something within this space or, or something you want to read or a conversation you want to have that you haven't had yet? Yep. Absolutely. And there's an able-bodied gaze too. And what I've learned so much about your work is how consistently you push that and all of the work that you're doing in SF too. And I also think that we're missing the intersectionality of all of this as well, right? Like there's just so many layers to how systemic oppression is perpetuated. Yeah. And this is what is complex about intersectionality. I want to close with two questions. I want to start with now that the newsletter has been out for about a month, are you finding that there are specific themes or content that are really resonating with your readers? Um, yes, there's definitely a lot of energy around the conversations around politics from voter suppression. Voter suppression was a big one in talking about what happened at the Kentucky primaries, but more importantly, how voter suppression has been historically used to mute people, all different types of marginalized people. We, we looked at it from the lens of black people. And then calling out Trump. I called out Trump and the, the racist things that he says and named him as a racist and, and emphasized how important it is for us to be watching the violence and the terror that he incites and how necessary it is for us to remember that when we go to the polls and simply don't vote for him. So I think that's something that is resonating. And I think that's something that's rising in society. We are seeing more than ever over the past couple of months, how critical leadership is during turbulent times. Mm. And I think many people would agree that Trump hasn't been handling it well, to put it lightly. <laughs> so that's something that's really um, resonating. And then interpersonal racism. So how can we show up better to supporting our neighbors and our friends from asking people if they're okay to apologizing, to having conversations with the racist people in our families. That is, is resonated too. Yeah. Racism is a whole system, right? That has these different levers from interpersonal to institutional at the top. Mm -hmm. I work in the disability space. How can we tackle racism within our own community, right? Mm -hmm. So I think all of us have something that we can do. Yes. And I've, what people have been emailing me is that they've realized that they can do stuff that they didn't even realize was possible. Like somebody wrote me that they had written a letter to their local officials to remove a Confederate statue and they did, mm. <laughs> right? Realizing that, like how often are we walking through life feeling like we don't have the power to change what we see? And this is the time more than any other time. I mean, the best time to have done this is yesterday. The second best time to do it is now to take the opportunity to change and fix what is broken in your sphere of influence or what has been designed to work from a place of inequity that needs to be redone. Beautiful. So I know you have done a lot of things that we have all benefited from, whether it's from Yoga Foster, Reclamation Ventures, anti the Anti-Racism Daily. What are you learning through all of this? I feel more and more empowered to create change. It's taken me a long time to find my voice and I've done so much unlearning around whether or not I belong as an entrepreneur and just in spaces and as a black woman. And so I am grateful for all of the work I've done over the past few years has helped me find my voice and practice it and use it both literally and figuratively. 
And I'm also learning from the anti-racism daily in particular, I'm also learning a lot that I didn't learn. So there's a lot of factual things that I'm learning. I don't think I would have spent a few hours researching the deep history of voter suppression in the way that I am to consolidate it concisely in an email. So those are the two things, some tactical facts, but also um, very excited about who I am becoming. Mm. If people want to follow you or support your work, what's the best way to do that? I live digitally on Instagram, so you can follow me there at Nicole A. Cardoza or go to my website at NicoleACardoza.com to find more about the projects I have. Awesome. And what are you doing for your mental health? Taking walks in nature. I am currently in a little cabin in Alaska and just overwhelmed by the beauty of nature here. So being outside. Yeah. I loved having you on the show, Nicole. I have been reflecting on this podcast. And one of the many things that I love about being able to do it is to reconnect with you in this way, but then for other people to get to learn more about your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. And also thank you for holding this space. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tiffany and You. This is your host, Tiffany Yu. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a rating and write us a review over at Apple Podcasts. It allows these conversations and these episodes to be discovered by other podcast listeners. I'm hoping that we can co-create something here that's valuable for you. So to the extent that you have feedback or other topics you'd like us to explore, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us at tiffanyu.com slash podcast. And a special shout out to Root Hub for our opening and closing podcast medleys. We release episodes weekly, so I hope that you'll join us next week for the next episode. Tiffany and you. This one is done and another coming soon. Special rendezvous for Tiffany and you.